The raging summers of 1967 and 68 are two decades in the past now. Those riots and the acts of civil disobedience are part of the mythology of a generation. The broad conflicts of that time are almost cliche now. Generation gap, the weathermen, burn baby burn, the whole world is watching. It is not to say that nothing ever really happened. That's nonsense, of course. But the general enshrinement of the crisis between the generations, between the races, between hawks and doves, ignores so much that is specific. In the riots of 1968, there were the motives and movements that we know from history's broad brush. The anti-war movement was a factor in New York. The ghetto was a crucible for economic and racial tension in Detroit and Atlanta. In Chicago, it was the war of the generations. But how many people remember that the riots at Columbia University in New York City were about a college curriculum and a grading system? That the riots in Detroit were about city housing policy? And in Chicago, it was a battle over use of a park. There were riots in the nation's capital in April of 1968. They were severe. They were similar to the kinds of civil unrest seen elsewhere. Yet the Washington, D.C. riots amounted to a war against domination by a colonial power. The dominated, the city, which had no political control over its own destiny until the 60s. The colonial power, the federal government, which had total control by statute over Washington, D.C. Twenty years after the riots of 1968 in Washington, many things have changed, many things have not. D.C. is struggling with political autonomy. The federal government still exerts a powerful influence. The people who burned their homes in protest are still there, and they remember what it was all about. When you grow up in a town, the physical landmarks tend to influence your life as much as the emotional milestones. I'm Debbie Morris. In 1968, I was working downtown as a proof clerk for a bank. When I go downtown these days, I still find myself looking for the Woolworths or my favorite shoe store or the record store I got my first Temptations records from. They're all gone. They've been replaced by luxury hotels and office buildings complete with posh restaurants and shopping plazas. In 1968, I could walk to Woolworths and sit at the fountain and have a real cherry Coke. Those last days of March 1968 were rather tense here. Dr. King was planning the Poor People's Campaign, which bothered a lot of people, black and white. The fact that thousands of people were coming to Washington to camp out on the mall didn't thrill anyone. Dr. King was also in the awkward position of having his nonviolent tactics fail in the North. There had been riots the previous summer in some northern cities, so when he came to speak at National Cathedral that last Sunday in March, it was to reassure the mostly white audience that he hadn't given up on nonviolence. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mounting of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. There were members of Congress who urged King not to come to Washington. They believed his mere presence would cause riots, and there was good reason for blacks to want to riot. Washington has always been segregated. Then, like now, there was tremendous poverty and frustration in black neighborhoods. But in those same neighborhoods, there was also a vibrant cultural life. In those days, if you wanted to hear Miles or Train or any other great jazz artist, 
you went to 9th and U Streets, Northwest. My name is Iris Sabin. In 1968, I was the owner of a jazz record store in Washington, D.C. Right at 9th and U Northwest was in the heart of the jazz ghetto in Washington. Uh, right up the street was the Bohemian Caverns. Right across the street was Frank's. Uh, and also across the street was a place called A. Bart's. Uh, the Howard Theater was only a block and a half away. But the vivid experiences that I remember uh, were going to the Bohemian Caverns when John Coltrane was working there, you know, with the original group with uh, McCoy and those cats, Elvin Jones. And uh, that was really uh, great. We spent a lot of time there. I'm Lillian Johnson Green, fifth generation Washingtonian. I host Green Dolphin Street on WPFW in Washington. In 1968, I owned a jazz club and restaurant called Dengani's Den. We showed movies on the wall. We, we had a lot of folks there who, if we ran out of room, we, they sat on the floor. Uh, we were like, um, the end place at that time for young people who were caught up into the movement. I can really remember many, many white people coming. So those were the people who would drive in from wherever they lived, Maryland and Virginia, listen, come over for some good music, some good entertainment, at a moderate price, in a nice atmosphere, on a nice street. You know, it's an in-town thing, but hey, you know, it's, it's safe up there, it's okay up there. Well, the rods changed that. At 7.10 this evening, Martin Luther King was shot in Tennessee. This was to be a gala occasion for a little Negro college from Mississippi appearing in Carnegie Hall with the great Duke Ellington. Martin Luther King, 20 minutes ago, died. We were setting up that night in the restaurant. We were going to have a fashion show with Rosemary Reed's fashions, and I was serving African cuisine. And we had titled the uh, affair, A Taste of Africa. And uh, my youngest daughter called me crying and I said, what's happening? She said, Martin Luther King has just been shot. And I said, oh my God. So I, I got on the telephone and before I could get on one telephone, my other phone was ringing and someone else telling me that he was dead. So we immediately closed up. People were running to, to the streets. If I remember correctly, it was probably about noonish. I, I got a call from a friend of mine, and he said, hey man, let me tell you what's happening. These cats here are at the corner of 14th and U, and they're gonna set fire to the whole town. I said, come on, man, you're putting me on. He said, no, it really has started already. And I said, man, like, don't bug me. You know, I got all this happening here. And he said, look, put me on hold, walk outside of your store, and you look up to its 14th and U. I said, okay. So I walked outside, and I looked up, and I saw this huge cloud of black smoke, and I said, oh my God, I don't believe it. <laughs> it's really happening. This late development, a large fire is now reported at the corner of 7th and L Streets in Northwest. Tear gas has been used to disperse a crowd of people near the fire scene. WBGC. We again urge you to stay in your homes to not become a party to the violence. If you're a doctor and you can volunteer your services to help today. People were hitting the glasses of the hardware store and the liquor store, which was next to me, to, to where I was. And um, some of them were saying, Miss Green, we aren't going to catch you. We aren't going to touch you. 
And at the time, I, I don't know if I said please don't or thank you or whatever, but I was so busy locking up and getting away from there, turning off everything. And, you know, I left out there so quick, I didn't put my food away. The next day, I went down there and had the National Guard guys all around, and it was a beautiful day, and I figured, well, this is probably over, so let's get back in business. And then it started again. I was bombed out one more time, and I said, okay, that's it, forget it. People were displaced, people, businesses were closed. Uh, many people who didn't own cars would have to go to the suburbs for uh, the kinds of things they could get on 14th Street, on 7th Street. I don't think they really, they were really thinking when they, when they went out there. In, in fact, I know they weren't because that was not what the dream and Martin Luther King was all about. The widow of President Kennedy asked, when will our country learn that to live by the sword is to perish by the sword? Black power advocate Stokely Carmichael said the death of Martin Luther King killed all reasonable hope. I see no one replacing Dr. King. That's why all America lost. Look, man, we're at war with the United States. Don't let anybody fool you. Well, I'm Ruth Webster. In 1968, during the riots, I was at home. But immediately upon seeing the riots, I went to the office of Change Incorporated, of which I was at that time chairman of the board. I've never been to a war. I've never been a part of a war. But it looked as if you see the movies and the pictures in the newspapers as if we'd just been at war and been attacked by an enemy. Very distressing. I was born here. It, it would make you cry. It was, it was terrible. This is Gaston Neal. In the 60s, I was the director of the New School of African American Thought. And, of course, that was right on 14th Street, 14th and W, between V and W, the great drug corridor now. And I remember walking down the street and felt free for the first time in my life. For the first time in my life, you felt you had control over this, you know, no matter if it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 blocks or half the city. And you knew that control was very, very temporary. But it was there. Ten minutes before four o'clock on WPGC, the curfew for the District of Columbia goes into effect in ten minutes at four o'clock. With the girls, I used to be a loser. I'd sit at home on Saturday. Police cars are roaring all over the place and fire engines and fires going all on. Then I happened, I was at the top of the hill and I happened to look down and I saw these eerie lights flashing, rolling slowly. And I said, wow, what's that? And then I began to realize, I said, that's the advance, you know, that's the, the, uh, the pr procession of all the armored half-tracks and, the, you know, all the, the 101st Airborne. And, and all of a sudden, all the street got quiet. And they came slowly up the street, almost like a funeral procession with the lights slowly flashing. And then you could look at the, you know, the AR-15s and, and the 30 caliber machine guns, and you could see, you know, all these troops sitting up there. Most of them were black, by the way. At that point, uh, we no longer control the streets. I remember taking the bus from work to Southeast that first day. As we rode down Pennsylvania Avenue, I noticed troops stationed at the federal buildings. They were even on the roof of the Justice Department. It occurred to me then that the people rioting would never attack the Justice Department or the Capitol or the White House. To them, the oppressor was more immediate. He was a guy down the street charging 75 cents for a quart of milk. Most of the businesses that got attacked or got you know, burned were at the forefront of the oppression. 
I mean, you have all these businesses in your community and, you know, you don't get anything back and they basically don't like you. And they're there and then they go out to the suburbs to live. And basically they're just there to make money off you and go home. I mean, they don't care about you. I mean, this was a rage and where was it going? What was it going to do, blow up inside? No, it, it, we would have ended up probably, if that had not happened, we ended up killing each other. I understood that anger. I thoroughly understood that anger. I was a part of that anger. And sometimes, although the Gandhi uh, method is, has been very effective, sometimes a little, a little violence seems to help. I remember the time when they would call a black woman my age girl. Well, obviously, I'm not a girl. This is the attitude, I think, uh, that most white people had. But I think it, it changed drastically after 1968. And they began to pass laws. President Johnson was able to get through the first civil rights law for years. It's only by joining together and only by working together can we continue to move toward equality and fulfillment for all of our people. About a month before D.C. exploded, the Kerner Commission issued its report. Following the riots of the previous summer, Lyndon Johnson had appointed the special commission to find out what caused the riots and what the federal government could do to prevent them from happening again. What is the relative impact of the depressed conditions in the ghetto? Joblessness, family instability, poor education, lack of motivation, poor health care, in stimulating people to riot. What federal, state, and local programs have been most helpful in relieving those depressed conditions? What is the proper public role in helping cities repair the damage that has been done? I'm Fred Harris, a former United States Senator from Oklahoma. In 1968, I was a member of the President's National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, the Kerner Commission. We found that, and said, that America was becoming two separate societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. We said that uh, the, what uh, white America had never really fully understood was that the black ghettos in the major cities of America were the result of racism. In D.C. in 1968, that meant a white city government with a token black presence appointed by a white federal government, one blind to the needs of many black people. I saw eight, nine, and 10, and 12 people living in one little, you know, one bedroom apartment. And I remember going into one place where it was just one room, and it was almost like it was 12, 13 people in one room. I mean, literally, and it was a large room, but literally in one room, and, and there were baby beds here, over there, and over here, adults here, and, and obviously they were using drugs. This is what the conditions were, all up and down the so-called ride corridor. The principal thing we recommended was jobs. We also uh, recommended uh, other, th other programs, for example, a fair housing law, which uh, was, uh, was actually adopted by Congress, although it didn't have as stiff uh, uh, enforcement requirements as we would have wanted. I do know that some of those programs worked. For instance, the Affirmative Action Program, uh, which was good. I know many people who 
were highly qualified for many, many years and, were, and never got anything. Um, I felt as though I was one of those people. So those programs meant nothing. It just, all it did is try to hire some of those people. You see, I always think the theory of three M's. First, uh, it, when they first colonize a place, first they bring in the missionary. And then when the missionary doesn't work, or we don't, we're not going for your God and for what your God is going to tell us to do. Then secondly, they bring in the money. And when they can't buy off enough leadership, then the third one they bring in is the Marines. So they did all three of those to us. All three. It's a classic example of it. Whether the anti-poverty programs worked or not, by the late 70s, much of the money had dried up. And while the Marines didn't return, neither did any real sense of mission. Still, there were some encouraging things happening. We were finally able to elect a mayor and a city council. We were assuming control of our affairs, a measure of autonomy, but we also inherited the legacy of the riots, whole sections of the city that still looked like bombed-out war zones. You know, so many businesses, both white and black, got wiped out completely, including uh, all the jazz clubs. And jazz just, you know, became very segregated again and moved in different directions. It really put us out of business. People didn't go back into the area who had patronized the area, who felt halfway free about coming in and going, you know, leaving, parking on one street, walking a block and a half or half a block into the club. You know, you would see places like, big places like the showboat that was there at 18th and Columbia Road where McDonald's is now, move out into the suburbs. And then um, suddenly, you know, you, that's closing up and then you hear other clubs closing up. We tried very, very hard uh, to bring businessmen together to see if they would consider remaining in the neighborhood, fighting to rebuild their businesses and come together and communicate with the community more so they would never happen again. That's when the black philosophy took hold. Everything was built black. If there is not a transfer of power from the white community to the black community, then there will be a polarization that will end in a revolution which may or may not be successful. We would perhaps meet um, at beautiful meetings with uh, developers, with people who were sincerely, or seemed, I should say, seemed sincerely interested in helping us do what we set out to do. But then uh, some people perhaps would go behind and frighten them and dare them to come up here and they wouldn't come. I think that conflict is one of the reasons of the slow progress of the total development of this area. Back in those days, Marion Barry, now the mayor of Washington, was more or less a radical, especially in debates over redevelopment with moderates like Ruth Webster. As mayor, Barry has become a moderate and has been working hard to bring developers, black and white, back to the city. A lot of the development did not take place uh, in the 14th Street area because the capital was not available from either black people or white people. Uh, they weren't uh, willing to take the risk. 
The Tivoli Theater here at 14th and Park Road is a case of not enough capital. In 1968, it was a popular neighborhood movie house, one of those Art Deco theaters other cities have restored. The Tivoli was not a direct casualty of the riots, but it was abandoned. At one point, there was a plan to turn the Tivoli into a cultural center for the neighborhood. We had a beautiful proposal, and I mean it was a beautiful proposal. It would have created many of the things you need for young people, old people. We even had a little small theater in there, because, you know, all the theaters now are small. But the funding for the project never came through. The Tivoli is still boarded up. I think it's a disgrace to the district that Tivoli stands up there like that. That's 20 years. That's a disgrace. The redevelopment that has taken place is mostly downtown, but in the last couple of years, it's begun to spread. It's even hit the ride corridor. And in some instances, they didn't come back. Other instances, they came back. In other instances, uh, there were joint ventures between the community uh, and the white business community. Uh, that's evidenced by the Sam Jackson Plaza project at 14th and U. Sam Jackson Plaza is an elaborate monument of concrete and glass that houses city offices. But looking across the street, you see an abandoned liquor store that's boarded up, a vacant lot on either side. Along U Street, Metro is building the green line of the subway. Long before Metro, many of U Street's small businesses were gone, driven out by crime and the failure of the city to act on redevelopment. Also gone are the rooming houses and low-rent apartments. That's one of the reasons for the city's large homeless population. So on a construction site, the city and a large bank have set up trailers for the homeless. Of course, the jazz clubs are long gone. If you walk north on 14th from Sam Jackson Plaza, you'll run into the crowds of addicts and dealers that wait here daily for action. This is one of the city's worst drug areas. Well, the frustration and the hopelessness and the, the anger and the, uh, all the other feelings that led to the disorders uh, temporarily paralyzed our city. And relatively speaking, drugs are about to paralyze this community, about to shut down the very fabric of our lives, and that we must do something about it. The streets aren't safe now. They weren't safe during the civil disturbances, but it was a different kind of disturbance than there is out there now. You're afraid to walk the streets, and it's not because people are riding, it's because people have guns and, and there's so much crime in the streets. And sometimes when I go home from work, I have on occasion seen a couple of policemen standing out on the sidewalk with shotguns. We're more or less prisoners ourselves. We don't need the National Guard. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mounting of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. We again urge you to stay in your homes, to not become a party to the violence. Look, man, we're at war with the United States. Don't let anybody fool you. This was a rage, and where was it going? Was it going to just blow up inside? No, it, it, we would end it up, probably, if that had not happened, we ended up killing each other. 
We are killing each other. In the first three months of this year, the city set a record for the number of murders. Most of the murders were drug-related. Whereas 20 years ago, people were grabbing TV sets, clothes, and other pieces of what they thought represented the dream, today on many of those same corners, crack, PCP, and heroin are being sold. Possession of a boom box or a designer jacket is now enough to get you killed. Recently, former members of the Kerner Commission met and issued an update of their original riot report, and I wasn't surprised to see their conclusions are the same. The tragic fact is that in places like Washington, D.C., and in other places where these riots occurred 20 years ago, uh, conditions uh, generally are worse for the people who live there. So that uh, you'd have to say today, we're uh, the Kerner warning is coming true. We are becoming Again, two separate societies, one black, and we'd have to add, and Hispanic, uh, the other white, separate uh, and unequal. When I was growing up here in the 50s, I remember going to the movies with my dad. We went to the Booker T or the Lincoln or the Republic on U Street. I remember my aunts having to shop in the basements of department stores because they weren't welcome upstairs. I also remember not going to Connecticut Avenue, except on school trips to the zoo, at least not until I was an adult. So much of what I knew, the physical places, is gone. Today I feel safer on Connecticut Avenue than I do on U Street or 7th and T, and I spent many a day there at the Howard Theater. I feel the loss of so much. Mm -hmm.